0: This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled 1 Chronicles. And with this as the focus, I'd like you to open your Bibles now to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. And as you make your way to the 10th chapter of 1 Chronicles, uh, I should take some time to put our text back into its context. It'll first help you to remember that the historic record uh, that we know as 1 Chronicles, it was initially published by a priest named Ezra shortly after the children of Israel returned from their Babylonian captivity. By way of review, I should remind you that Ezra began this book by tracing the family tree of Israel all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so the the first chapter of Ezra begins with a focus on Adam and Eve and and then just breaks down the table of nations and so on and so forth. And not only that, but but as you all know, he also spent eight chapters connecting the tribes of Israel to the land of their inheritance. And so he broke down genealogies and he helped uh, the Israelites to understand uh, where their inheritance of land was located. And in this way, Ezra was helping those who were returning uh, from Babylon to the land of promise. He was helping them to identify and properly Occupy the tribal territories that the Lord had given to each family well now here in our text tonight we find ezra he 's shifting his focus from israel 's genealogies and, and israel 's tribal boundaries and now he 's shifting his focus to the sinful decisions that resulted in the rebellion of Israel, which then eventually culminated in the Babylonian captivity. Well, in order to set the stage for the events that led up to israel 's exile, Ezra first reminds his readers about the sinful rebellion of King Saul which included vanity, it included blasphemy, as well as necromancy. Uh, Well, with this as our focus, uh, you know, it was at that point in time when the Lord raised up the Philistines to depose King Saul. It was because of his vanity, because of his blasphemy, because... He, you know, he engaged in necromancy. The Lord raised up the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, to depose King Saul from the throne of Israel. And as we make our way through this chilling chapter of the Bible, uh, we're going to see a perfect picture of the point that Paul was making when he warned the church in Galatia that the person who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. Well, with this as our focus, let's return to our study of this incredible book. If you would look with me there at First Chronicles chapter 10. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Here we learn that the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now as we consider this battle that occurred between the Philistines and the Israelites, I should take a moment to point out that the Philistines were immigrants from Crete who occupied the territory which was southwest of Israel between the Mediterranean Sea and the western mountain range of Judah. It's also important to understand that uh, you know there's no legitimate connection between the Philistines that we find here in the Bible and the people who now identify themselves as Palestinians. There seems to be some confusion about this, and for good reason, but I'm here to tell you that there is no real connection, there is no real bloodline connection between the Philistines, found here in the text tonight, and the Palestinians who dwell uh, in the land of Israel today. Now, it's my prayer uh, that every Palestinian, as well as every Israelite, might be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not my intention to say, oh, Palestinians, bad Israelites, good. I'm just saying, hey, we're all sinners. We all need Jesus. And so we ought to be praying for both Palestinians and Israelites altogether. But it's also important for us to understand that the land of promise, it belongs to Israel. The land of promise belongs to Israel according to the everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham, and there shouldn't be any debate about this. For those who insist that the land actually belongs to the Palestinians, it's important for us to understand that the Palestinians are actually Arabs. Uh, Proof of this can be seen in a statement made by a 20th century Arab Christian named Farad Kassab. He once declared this, he said, The Orthodox Palestinian Ottomans call themselves Arabs and are, in fact, Arabs. Palestinians are Arabs. We don't have time tonight to to get into the entire history of the issue here, but I'll just sum it up with the words of Robert Spencer who declared this. He said, The Palestinian nation was invented as a tool of the jihad against Israel. Instead of tiny Israel surrounded by a huge and hostile Arab state, uh, the picture suddenly changed to the powerful Israel war machine victimizing an even tinier people. This is a story. It's created in order to make uh, the Palestinians look like, you know, they're just the, the victims of, of big, mean Israel. Christian, listen, the Palestinians never existed until the day that they were invented because before they were Palestinians, they were, they were Arabs. There is no Palestinian language. I defy you to go find one. Uh, Go back in history, find, you know, literature of the Palestinians. There are none. Uh, And and, and listen, there there is no archaeology that traces the ancient, you know, Palestinians. No. And, and, And because of all this, they try to say, well, the Palestinians were the Philistines. There's no reason to believe that. There's no DNA evidence of this. There's no archaeological evidence of this. And so let's not be confused by those who just would have us to believe that the Palestinians today were the Philistines yesterday. There's no connection between the groups. Now, again, I I would, you know, remind you of what I said in, in the preface of this section. As Christians, we ought to be praying for the salvation of every Arab, even those who call themselves Palestinians. And we ought to be praying for the salvation of every Israelite. Without Jesus Christ, no one's getting saved, regardless of your lineage, regardless of where you came from. But when it comes to the question of land, and when it comes to the question of who has the legitimate right to the land of promise, the Bible is perfectly clear that the Lord has given the land of promise to the descendants of Jacob, namely the tribes of Israel. With that being the case, the Arab Palestinians of today, you know, they they don't have any right to the land, but, but they do have a few things in common with the Philistines. There's no real connection between the two groups, but they do have a few things in common. Uh, First of all, they're occupying land that actually belongs to Israel, just like the the Philistines (laughs) back in the ancient times were occupying land that God gave to Israel. And secondly, uh, much like the Philistines, the Palestinians are constantly causing conflict with the people to whom the land belongs. And with that being the case, we ought to pray for the peace of Israel as we all wait for the return of the Messiah. And it's also interesting to know that the conflict between the Philistines and the nation of Israel, this can actually be traced all the way back to the days of Abraham. It was actually at that point in time during the days of Abraham when the king of the Philistines began to harass Abraham as well as his son Isaac because he he coveted the things that that God had given to Abraham. And then, you know, after the Egyptian captivity, the, the Lord then led the children of Israel back to the land of promise. And it was at that point in time when the Philistines were right there uh, to to pick up where they had left off. And and that's when they continued to attack the people of God. And it's here in our text tonight where we find Ezra. He's reminding his readers about the day when the Lord empowered the Philistines to defeat the armies of Israel right there at Mount Gilboa. Topographically speaking, uh, Mount Gilboa was deep in the territory of Israel. And as we consider the way in which the Lord enabled the Philistines to, to invade and attack the children of Israel deep in Israeli territory, uh, we must not forget about the conditional covenant that, that the God of Israel made with his chosen people. Because we might look at this and wonder, well, why, why didn't the God of Israel stop the Philistines? Well, for a very good reason. It's actually here in Leviticus chapter 26 where we find the reason. It's here in Leviticus 26 where the Lord makes a promise to those who would faithfully keep the covenant by declaring this. He says, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. But, dun, 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 that word but just changes everything. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments and if you despise my statutes, Or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all of my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies." Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Here in these verses, we find the Lord helping his chosen people to understand that those who faithfully keep the covenant would be blessed with military might. They would be blessed with all the food they needed. They would be blessed with health. But then he warns them. He warns them that their disobedience would result in military defeat, it would result in disease, it would result in fever. In light of this warning, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Lord was the one who was empowering the Philistines to go deep into the land of Israel and defeat the armies of Israel. The Lord empowered them to do that. Why? Well, the reason why was due to the fact That the Lord was using the Philistines to remove the family of Saul from the royal status that they had received from the Lord. And And the reason for that is because King Saul was living in sin. He was disregarding the covenant. He was doing his own thing. And so the Lord raised up the Philistines. He raised up the Philistines to punish the Israelites. Now with this in mind, let's turn our attention back to Ezra's account of this battle. If you would look with me there at First Chronicles chapter 10, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 2. Here we learn that the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchusua, uh, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. Now here in these verses, we find the tragic end of Saul and his sons. And as we consider the details surrounding this battle that resulted in the death of King Saul, as well as the death of his sons, as well as his armor bearer, we must not forget that this punishment was provoked by the sinful decisions of Saul. We'll learn more about this later on. We'll, we'll learn about the vanity and the blasphemy and the necromancy that resulted in this punishment. But for now, I just want to take a moment to consider the way in which the sins of the parent will always inevitably end up affecting their children. The evidence of this has been demonstrated by many, many secular studies over the years. According to the research, girls whose fathers left either before they were born or up to the age of five Those girls were seven to eight times more at risk of becoming pregnant as an adolescent than girls living with their fathers. Uh, A father's departure between the ages of six to 13 suggested that there would be a two or three times greater risk of them becoming pregnant. Uh, Another study shows that 92% of girls who come from a fatherless home are more likely to experience their own divorce. Divorce. And so we see that when you know, a father uh, is sinning against his family by not sticking around or, or, or by not being a good father, uh, the, there's effects that, that will trickle, possibly trickle down to the, tr- uh, to the children. Uh, another example of this is seen in the effects of alcoholism and drug abuse. Uh, those who grew up with an alcoholic parent are highly susceptible to stress-related illnesses and, and potential alcoholism on, uh, of their own. Those who are raised by a parent who abuses drugs tend to have extreme mental health issues. And not only that, but parents who place a greater emphasis on secular education over biblical instruction, well, they're inadvertently teaching their kids to treat the Christian faith as something that is secondary, it's something for the back burner, and if you have time for it then, and you can get around to it after all your secular stuff is done, uh, then fine. It's no wonder why so many kids stop going to church when they head off to college, because under you know, the, the, their, uh, the, the parents' decisions, they were trained for years to think that secular school was more important than church. And well, we go to college, don't have time for church. Without debate, the sins of the parent end up affecting their family for generations to come, and it's for this reason that every parent must prayerfully consider every decision they make so that we can train up our children in the way that they should go. And and I praise the Lord that the Lord can help us to overcome all these things. You know, the Lord can correct these things in our own families so long as we put him first in our lives and put him first in our homes. Because if we don't, listen, you know, we might end up being the parent that leads our kids down a path that results in the Lord's loving correction. And we don't want to take our kids down that path. And listen, uh, our sinful decisions not only end up affecting our family, but our sinful decisions will also impact our Christian community. And in order to prove my point, let's pick up our study of 1 Chronicles chapter 10. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 6. Here Ezra declares, So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Now here in these verses, we see how the death of Saul and the death of his sons, it created widespread panic throughout the region of Israel. And as a result, the people of God began to flee from their homes, which were uh, then occupied by the Philistines as we consider this tragic situation, we must not fail to recognize how it was the sinful decisions of Saul that ended up affecting the entire nation of Israel as the Lord raised up and empowered the enemy to conquer the people of God and claim the land for their own. This is exactly what God said he would do, and that's exactly what he did. And in light of this situation, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that our sinful decisions will also have an effect on our community. In order to prove my point, let's consider the challenge that Paul presented to the Christians in Corinth. And if you would hold your place here in the book of First Chronicles, let's turn in our Bibles now to First Corinthians, chapter five. Let's turn to First Corinthians five. You see, it's here in the fifth chapter of First Corinthians where we find Paul. He's challenging the church there in Corinth, and the reason why is because they were allowing the sins of one uh, one person to, to negatively affect the entire community. With this in mind, if you would look with me there at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to begin reading there at verse 1 where Paul declares it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you for I indeed as absent in the body but present in the spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's rebuking the Christians there in Corinth for the way that they had failed to rebuke a believer for actively engaging in sexual immorality. And according to Paul, uh, what, this was, uh, what this meant was that they were allowing a little leaven, which is comparative to sin, it's degradation, they were allowing a little degradation to, to degrade the whole lump. They were allowing a little sin in the church to affect the entire Christian community there in Corinth. They were allowing a little sexual sin to affect their entire community as their hearts began to harden against the truth of God's word. Paul says that they're puffed up about it. In other words, they saw themselves as being, you know, open-minded and and were so proud of, of, you know, how how forgiving we are and, and how accepting we are and... And Paul's saying, this is not good. (laughs) This is not good for your community, and this is not good for you individually, and it's certainly not good for the guy that's living in sin. You need to throw him out of the church and allow the devil to beat up on him for a little while so that he realizes how good it is back in the church and so that he might repent and return. Christian, listen, those who are actively engaging in unrepentant sin are not only living a, a life that will eventually result in the Lord's loving correction, but they're also living a life that is allowing a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. And, and this not only includes their immediate family, but also their church family. When we you know, live in sin and live in sin in, in, in a way that's unrepentant, we're, we're, you know, it's, it's not that we're struggling with sin, it's that we're just given over to it. Listen, we all struggle with sin, every single one of us. And, and, and if you don't think you struggle with sin, then you're struggling with the sin of pride right now, right? So we all struggle with sin. The, the question isn't, are we, are, are, you know, are we struggling with sin? The, the issue that I'm talking about is those who are no longer struggling with sin. They're given over to it. They embrace it. They enjoy it. And those who are in the church who are given over to their sin, that little bit of leaven is going to end up affecting the entire community. And it's for this reason that Paul rebukes this church, for not dealing with it. We have to deal with the sin that's in our community. And those who don't want to repent, well, they ought to go back into the world and go live for the the devil. I mean, you know, Paul's basically saying either be cold or hot. You know, Be fully for Christ or, or be fully for the devil. One way or the other, make a decision. But don't sit here and ride the fence. Don't try to feel comfortable at church while you're living in sin. It's not good for anybody. We ought to be dealing with the sin in our lives. We ought to be repenting of the sin that we struggle with. And not only that, but listen, the the Christian who is actively engaging in unrepentant sin, they not only affect their family, they they not only affect their church, uh, but they're also giving unbelievers a reason to rejoice. And with this in mind, let's pick up our study of 1 Chronicles chapter 10. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 8. Here we learn that it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor And sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Now as we consider this satanic celebration, it will help you to know that Dagon, which is translated fish, was the Philistine deity of fertility. Uh, the false god of the Philistines, known as Dagon, was typically depicted uh, with the face and the hands of, of men, but, but then the tail of a fish. I don't know about you, but this idol sounds a bit fishy to me. But. Uh... We actually know uh, about four different temples that were dedicated to Dagon. There may have been more, but archaeologically speaking, we know of four. Uh, there was one in northern Syria. There was one in Gaza. There was one in Ashdod. Uh, and then there was one mentioned here in our text tonight, which was built in Beth Shan. Now, the ruins of this temple were exca- excavated back in 1925 by the Museum of the University of Pennsylvania. And according to the evidence, this temple was built about 200 years before the death of Saul, two hundred years before this text took place, uh, this temple was built and and then you know along comes Saul, you know Saul sins, God raises up the Philistines to punish Saul, uh, and then they kill him, they cut off his head, and they haul it into this temple. The severed head of Saul was on display in that pagan temple simply because his pride resulted in rebellion. That took him down a path that resulted in God's punishment. But the enemy was celebrating this. They were celebrating the sin of Saul. And we should also notice there in the second half of verse 9, where we learn that the, the Philistines proclaimed the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. The Philistines went and worshiped Dagon, they worshiped their fish god, giving him the glory for this victory. They celebrated this victory over the armies of Israel. What they failed to recognize is that the God of Israel was the one who raised up the Philistines. But all of this gave them cause to think that Dagon was more powerful than the God of Israel. And in this way, King Saul's sin gave the Gentiles a reason to blaspheme the name of God. And it's in similar fashion that the Christian who departs from the straight and narrow path of the Lord, they're actually giving unbelievers a reason to blaspheme the name of our God. With that being the case, we should take a moment to consider the encouragement that Peter presented in his first epistle. It's First Peter chapter 2, where the apostle Peter declares, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, "'Glorify God in the day of visitation. "'Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man "'for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme "'or to governors as to those who are sent by him "'for the punishment of evildoers "'and for the praise of those who do good. "'For this is the will of God, that by doing good "'you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, "'yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice.' but as bondservants of God. As we consider what Peter here is saying, we can see that he was well aware of the fact that many unbelievers are constantly looking for every opportunity to accuse Christians of sin. Why? Well, the reason why is because in their eyes, the sinning Christian gives them yet one more reason to continue rejecting Jesus. The sinning Christian gives them yet one more reason to continue rejecting Jesus. Jesus the most common example of this well it's uttered by the unbelievers who are quick to, to declare you know I mean, I'd never go to church why because the church is full of hypocrites one of the most common arguments against the church church is full of hypocrites Now we just say it's not full of hypocrites there's plenty of seats here you know we can always take a few more hypocrites here no problem listen we shouldn't be hypocrites we shouldn't. And, and one reason why is because the hypocritical Christian is just giving unbelievers one more reason to reject Jesus Christ. Now, what they fail to recognize is that they're hypocrites too. <laughs> and that's, that's important to point out. Yeah, they don't recognize their own sinfulness. You know, it's, it's like, you know, the... The, the people who are, you know, wanting to defend the cops, but then they turn around and create their own police force there in Seattle. You know, a little bit of hypocrisy, right? Yeah. Rather than recognizing their own sinfulness, they instead celebrate the fall of every backslidden believer. Rather than, you know, examining their own backyard, they want to look in your backyard and see if there's anything wrong there. And so they're just as hypocritical as the rest of us. But the the fact of the matter is that we shouldn't be hypocrites. Peter called every Christian to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable. And in this way, we avoid giving the unbelievers around us another reason to reject Jesus. We shouldn't give them a reason to go into their temples of Dagon and celebrate the fall of yet another Christian. And yet, we do this all the time. Why? Well, because it's so easy to backslide. We ought to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable, and not only that, but we should also become valiant believers who are ready to stand for what is right. And what this has the goal, let's pick up our study of First Chronicles chapter 10. If you would look with me there, uh, beginning of verse 11, here Ezra goes on to write, and when, all, uh, and when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree of, at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Uh, now, now, here in these verses, we find Ezra recounting the response of those who were dwelling in the Transjordan city of Jabesh Gilead. This was a city in the tribal boundaries that belonged to Gad. And rather than allowing the bodies of Saul and his sons to just decompose there on the battlefield, the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead arose. That's what we see in verse 12. All the valiant men arose. They took a stand and they risked the retribution of the Philistines. They risked the cancel culture. They risked the attack, you know, of of those who were opposed to the people of God. And they did all of this. Why? Just so that they could provide Saul and his sons with a proper burial there in the land of Gad. And, And that's extremely valiant of them. And in order to comprehend the quality of those brave men, it'll help you to know that the word valiant it's found there in the beginning of verse 12. It's translated from a Hebrew word which was used of those who demonstrate the virtue and valor of those who have uncommon courage. It's the the virtue and the valor of those who have uncommon courage. And as we consider the courage of those men from Jabesh Gilead, I, I would hope that we, too, would all become courageous Christians here in these last days. As we see the fallen Christian soldiers on the battlefield and and the enemy ready to pounce on anybody who takes a stand for them, you know, it's so easy for us to just shrink back and remain silent and not take that courageous stand. But we should. We should be courageous Christians who take a stand for our fallen Christian brothers and sisters. I like the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. There he declares, Watch, stand fast in the faith be courageous, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Christian, listen, the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. And with that being the case, why is it that so many of us are so afraid to take a stand for Jesus Christ? The Lord hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. Therefore, rather than living in fear of the Philistines who, who, who are ready to run our name through the mud all over social media, let's not be afraid of the Philistines. Let's rise up in the power of God and let's become those courageous Christians who are serving the Lord without fear. Not only that, but I I would also encourage you to remember that the Lord has promised to to punish his people who who choose to rebel against all of these things. And with this in mind, let's look at the final verse here, uh, the the final two verses of 1 Chronicles chapter 10. I'm going to draw your attention there to verse 13. Here Ezra declares, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to to David, the son of Jesse. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Ezra. He's reminding his readers about the death of King Saul and, and the sins that led up to his death. Notice again there in verse 13. Ezra again refers to the unfaithfulness that he committed against the Lord. Saul was a king who was unfaithful. And just to be perfectly clear about this, Ezra goes on to tell us that Saul did not keep the word of the Lord. He received the word of the Lord. He knew what the word of the Lord said. But he did not keep the word of the Lord. This, of course, is a telltale sign of the pride that fills the hearts of those who think they know better than God. And it's sad that the church is filled with these people. They see what the word of God says. They, they see what it says as plain as day, but they think they know better. Well, you know, this doesn't really apply to me, or, or you know, that, that's for another time, or I, 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 I can figure it out better. Consider how God responded to King Saul who did not keep the word of the Lord. He was punished because of his pride. It was his vanity that caused him to blaspheme the lord rather than relying on the word of god saul ended up seeking guidance from a medium now that's not like a mid-sized person you know the the medium was actually a spiritist the full version of the story it's found in first samuel chapter 28 i encourage you to read it for your own homework <clears throat> but it's there in first samuel chapter 28 where we find saul he's asking a necromancer To make contact with the spirit of Samuel. Samuel, the prophet, had already died. And rather than looking to the word of God, rather than seeking the Lord through prayer, Saul goes and asks this medium, this necromancer, to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. And in this way, he disregarded the clear instructions of God's word. As a matter of fact, it's in Leviticus chapter 20 where we find the Lord presenting a command against this very thing. Uh, Look with me there at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6. Here the Lord tells us that the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. In light of this law, there should be no doubt that king Saul was too proud to submit himself to the clear instructions of God's word God's word is very clear here that those who engage in this sort of spiritual prostitution with with you know these witches are going to be punished but king Saul was too proud to simply submit himself to the clear instructions of God's word and with that being the case he was no longer fit to lead the nation of Israel and it was time for him to receive the punishment that the Lord promised to pour out on those who engage in this sin for this reason that the Lord raised up the Philistines to come in and remove Saul from his royal position and and as we continue to make our way through this book we'll see how the Lord prepared the throne for Jesse's son David now as we consider the way that the Lord punished Saul for his unfaithfulness, for, for his vanity, for his blasphemy, his, for, for his necromancy, it's important for us to remember something that Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 12 because this is a warning for believers. With this as the focus, <clears throat> if you would look with me there at Hebrews chapter 12. I want to begin reading of verse 4 where Paul declares, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Simply put, and to sum it up, the Lord has promised to punish the sinning Christian with his loving correction. The Lord has promised to punish the sinning Christian with his loving correction. I'm not talking about punishment in in the next life. I'm not talking about judgment, you know, that that might be resulting in everlasting condemnation. No, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We're talking about loving correction here in this world. And the Lord has no problem punishing the sinning Christian with loving correction. Now, I have no doubt that we all struggle receiving a spiritual spanking. Nobody wants to be corrected. And and, and if you you think I'm wrong, you're wrong. And so there, you just got corrected. Nobody likes to be corrected. Nobody wants a spiritual spanking. And yet it's crucial for every Christian to remember that the Lord chastens us like a loving father so that we might become those believers whose lives are being transformed by the power of God's word. I thank God that that he didn't leave me as I was when I first came to faith. I was a mess. You know, back in 1995, when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was a mess. I was a wreck. I, I didn't have a clear thought in my head. And over the years he's just continued to sanctify me and sometimes uh, you know he's given me those spiritual spankings as I've needed them and I I thank God for those corrections because they've they've helped me to become pretty much the best Christian in the world. <laughs> no seriously. There was a poll and uh I'm not number 1 but some would say I'm number 2 but uh anyway But seriously, these spiritual spankings are necessary for our growth. They're necessary for us so that we can become transformed into the people that the Lord wants us to become you find yourself even in that place tonight maybe you've been receiving that spiritual spanking and and it hurts and you're beginning to grow discouraged i want to back up and consider the beginning of this same chapter it's here in hebrews chapter 12 if you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1 because here paul begins this chapter by declaring therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Christian, listen, the the Lord Jesus, he is the author of our faith. But that's not all. The Lord Jesus is not only the author of our faith, he is also the finisher of our faith. Isn't that good news? Listen, if it were left up to me, if, if, if the Lord's like, okay, I'll author your faith, but you gotta finish it, you know, I'd be like, uh, yeah, don't don't count on that. But the Lord is the author and the finisher of our faith. And that's very comforting to know. This is great news because listen, the race that is set before us it's a narrow path, and it's a race that's filled with all sorts of struggles. And not only that, but listen, as you uh, probably already know, it's only a matter of time till we stumble of, over our own spiritual feet. As we're running our race, you know, we get tripped up in, in our own feet, and we stumble and we fall. And it's there where we can, you know, find that place of discouragement, and we can begin to think that we're not good enough. We're never going to make it. We're never going to cross the finish line. And it's sad that there are many in the church today who allow these discouragements to completely derail their faith. And I think that's what happened with King Saul. I think he got discouraged. He got depressed. His faith got derailed. He's no longer hearing from the Lord. And so he runs off and tries to hear from Samuel through a necromancer. One discouragement just led to a bad decision, led to another discouragement, led to another bad decision, until he finds himself suffering the correction of God. And all of this was just simply based in pride. And much like King Saul, there are many saints who are allowing their pride to lead them down the wrong path, which will eventually result in the Lord's loving correction. Because they're too proud to repent. They're too proud to turn back. They're too, too proud to say, God, I need your help. I keep stumbling. I keep struggling. And I desperately need your help. They're, they're no longer looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of, the, uh, of our faith. But they're trying to do it in their own power while carrying the weight of their own sin. And Paul says, look, you know, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Set it aside and get your focus straight. If this sounds like your life, then I encourage you to stop focusing on the sins that so easily ensnare us and instead fix your focus on Jesus because Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And as we fix our focus on Jesus, let's press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And as we do, we will run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do I know this? Well, because the Lord Jesus has promised to provide us with the spiritual strength that we need so that we can overcome every sinful desire until the day when we finally cross the finish line of faith. And on that day, we'll give God all the glory as we look back and realize that Jesus is in fact the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray.